Hi, my name is Sojan Vujotic and this is Race and Racism. Today we're going to be talking about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and how they are connected today. Anti-Semitism can be defined as hostility to prejudice or discrimination against Jews and Islamophobia similarly just against Muslims. Um, So Anti-Semitism uh, is important uh, for the purposes of this class because, as I said uh, in my uh, first and second lectures, uh, there's no consensus on when a race begins or when it emerges. Uh, most people believe, uh, most scholars believe, it emerges or co-emerges with modernity. That's why we had that piece by Grossfugel on the long 16th century. Uh, but some uh, Euro-medievalists think that actually we can talk about the emergence of racism uh, in in Europe, in medieval Europe. Uh, so uh, Christine, uh, sorry, Geraldine Hang, uh, whose uh, book appears on the recommended uh, reading list for today. So she says that uh, it's actually wrong uh, that race, race study scholars, historians and others believe that race and its pernicious spawn of racism were modern day phenomena. Uh, actually, if we, if we think of a race more broadly, uh, not simply you know, the biology, but culture, then we could see that actually the first uh, racist atrocities took place in the medieval period, roughly between 500 and 1500 CE. So the periodic extermination of Jews in Europe. So if you, if you go to Europe, you will see, you know, any, any big city will say, and here's, here's what, you know, was the Jewish ghetto in uh, 8th century, then again uh, in the 14th century, then again uh, in the 17th century, and every time we exterminated it, right? Um, so you see the demand that, uh, that uh, by the Europeans uh, onto the Jews, that they mark their bodies and their bodies of the children with a large visible badge, the herding of Jews into specific uh, places, uh, not just in the cities, but also outside the cities, the vilification of Jews for, um, uh, for, for various subhuman and bestial characteristics, uh, the need to ingest the blood of Christian children whom, whom they tortured and crucified to death. I mean, you basically see all these stories about pre-modern uh, prejudice um, that could be seen as acts of racism. Um, so why do we not think of it as racism? Well, uh, medievalists like Heng would say that this derives from an understanding of race that's been overtly influenced by the era of scientific racism, right? The stuff that we talked about with the so-called Age of Enlightenment. Um, uh, uh, race is basically one of the primary names we have for for our repeating tendency to demarcate human beings uh, through selected differences that are identified as absolute and fundamental. But rather than oppose um, pre-modern prejudice to modern racism, we can see that the treatment of medieval Jews, including their legalized murder by the state on the basis of community rumors and lies, are actually racial acts, and, and we call them you know, hate crimes today. Um, but in this context, uh, we, uh, we could see that uh, there's a, you know, we, could, we could reevaluate the actions and events in the medieval uh, Europe to understand that racial thinking can occur, can can happen even before uh, the vocabulary to describe them emerged later on. 
So, and, and, you know, they would argue that you see medieval racial thinking in art, in statutory maps, in saints' lives, in state legislature, church laws, social institutions, popular beliefs, um, settlement, colonization, many kinds of literature, and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, if you have this, this broader definition of racism uh, as not uh, as, 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 as culture as opposed to biology, and, and it's, a, it's a problematic distinction for various reasons, you could perhaps make an argument that the treatment of Jews marks medieval England as the first racial state in the history of the West. Um, so, church and state laws produce surveillance, tagging, herding, incarceration, legal murder, and expulsion of, of, uh, of the Jewish people. A popular st story of Jews killing Christian boys evolved over centuries, showing how changes in popular culture helped create emerging community of England. England's 1975 uh, statue of Jews recommended residential segregation for Jews and Christians, inaugurating what would seem to be the beginning of the ghetto in Europe, right? Uh, so so this, is, uh, this is something we see in Geraldine Heng's book, England's uh, laws and England's expulsion of its Jews in uh, uh, 1290 marks the first permanent expulsion of Jews in Europe. And, and you see this elsewhere. You see this um, in other European countries, and this is always related uh, with extermination of others. So Muslim, Islam, uh, and the Prophet were vilified in numerous creative ways similarly, right? Uh, the extraterritorial interventions into West Asia, we call the Crusades, uh, coalesced into into an indispensable template for Europe's later colonial empires of the modern era. So we can't just begin in the long 16th century, we ought to begin at least in the 13th century. And of course, even fellow Christians could be racialized. Uh, literature justifying England's colonization of Ireland in the 12th century depicted the Irish as a quasi-human, savage, infantile, and bestial race. This is a racializing strategy in England's colonial domination of Ireland that echoes from the medieval uh, through the early modern period four centuries later. I mean, think of the words we use constantly, beyond the pale. There's a brewery here in Ottawa called Beyond the Pale. Where, where does this come from? It comes from England's colonization of, of Ireland. Um, uh, there's a pale, a boundary, beyond which are these... Uh, Celts, who are bestial, quasi-human, savage, infantile, etc. Uh, inside the pale are us, uh, English settlers. Uh, plantation, where does this word come from? To plant a settler in Ireland, right? So this, this actually raises some very interesting questions uh, in the modern study of race. You might, might have heard of books such as uh, Karen Brodkin's How the Jews Became White and What That Tells Us About Race in America. This was a book published in uh, 1998. There's another book um, by Noel Ignatiev, How the Irish Became White, which is a similar story. This one's actually published earlier in 95. Um, and yeah, in, in this book, he looks at uh, the Irish who emigrated to America in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, and they were essentially fleeing caste oppression in a system of landlordism that made the material conditions of the Irish peasant comparable to those of uh, enslaved people in the Americas. And they came to a society in which color was important determinant in social position. It was not a pattern they were familiar with. 
and they bore no responsibility for it, I, I could argue. But nevertheless, they adopted to it in, in, a, in a short order. Um, and so uh, you see uh, that the Irish immigrants to 18th century United States uh, commonly found themselves thrown together uh, with uh, free blacks, so living in, in the north. Irish and Afro-Americans fought each other as well as the police, but they also socialized, occasionally intermarried, and developed a common culture uh, of the of the essentially uh, the the low class uh, of the lowly, and they both suffer the scorn uh, of those uh, better situated. Uh, so you see, uh, it was speculated that if racial amalgamation was ever to take place, it would begin between uh, the blacks and the Irish. This was this is antebellum America, right? Um, things turned out otherwise, of course. The outcome was not that the inevitable con consequence of blind historic forces or biology worse, uh, but it was the result of choices made by the Irish and others among available alternatives. So this is we're talking again about the social and historical construction of reality. This is this is uh, you know now we're talking about the Irish. They wanted to enter the white race. It was a strategy to secure an advantage in a competitive society. So mo many of you, you know, some of you at least in this class, are listening to this and thinking, well, you know, I, I'm Irish or part Irish or whatever. This is not how I remember it. Well, this is the, the story is about the 19th century, right? Um, and, and what did it mean for, to the Irish to become white in America and in Canada later on? It meant that they, they it did not mean that they all became rich or even middle class, however that, that you, you define. Um, there are plenty of poor Irish today. I mean, this is, you know, you have an entire Hollywood genre of movies, uh, you know, poor Irish. Uh, nor did it mean that they all became the social equals of the, of, of the you know, Kennedys or something. Uh, you know, just because um, Grace Kelly married the Prince of Monaco or whatever, Kennedy was uh, the president of the United States for a thousand days. Uh, this did not eliminate all barriers to Irish entry into certain exclusive circles. Uh, to Irish laborers to become white meant that at first they could sell themselves piecemeal instead of being sold for life. And later they could compete for jobs in all spheres instead of being confined to certain work. Uh, and to Irish entrepreneurs it meant they could function outside of a segregated market. Uh, so in becoming white, the Irish ceased to be green and beyond the pale. Um, and now, you know, you can relate this perhaps uh, to this idea uh, of the Jews becoming white in, in America. Um, keep in mind uh, that uh, uh, when the Jews themselves came, Jewish immigrants from Germany, Eastern Europe, uh, came to the United States, they were concentrated in, in New York City. This is uh, late 19th, early 20th century, and many worked in the garment industry. Um, and so Jew, uh, just as trade unions organized by the Irish excluded blacks from wage labor in many large cities, the acceptance of anti-Semitism enabled craft unions to exclude Jews from better paying occupations. So even Jews who were skilled, hat makers, watchmakers, whatever, they had no choice but to work as unskilled labor. And not only were the Jews relegated to these low paying jobs, they often had no choice but to live in cramped housing in slum areas known as ghettos. Uh, so this labor, housing, and educational discrimination has led folks like Karen Brodkin uh, to contend uh, to, that Jews were not viewed as white in this period. Well, be that as it may, it's, there's so many 
um, applications of this theoretical perspective to many ethnic groups uh, in the United States, in Canada, elsewhere in the world, so immigrants, how they are trying to become white. And and basically, the, the, fine, the current research is, well, it really depends. Um, it's unclear whether Italians were white on arrival or became white in America uh, or Canada. It depends on what city we're talking about. The situation in Chicago was very dis- different from the situation in Montreal. And it really you know, matters whether we're talking about early 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. So space and, and, and time matters a lot because, uh, because political development, social development uh, reacts to a more global development uh, and, and vice versa. Uh, so, so we're talking about entangled histories. Uh, so be that as it may, I'm not telling you to read all of these histories of race uh, in, the, in North America, but I'm just flagging you, uh, setting you up for, for, for our two readings for today. So in the aftermath of World War II, as Americans reckoned with the horrors of Nazism and subsequently repudiated the eugenics movement, anti-Semitism lost much of its hold. So whereas Jewish people who grew up in the 1920s uh, and, 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 uh, and earlier uh, suffered anti-Semitism, they faced violent forms of anti-Semitism. This diminished by the 1950s. And so you could argue that whiteness uh, expanded to include, include Jewish people. Same for Canada. There's not much difference in terms of uh, what, what's happening here. So what about, what about Muslims? Um, well, because race and religion are distinct phenomena, much religious discrimination and, and, and racial discrimination are, are not identical. Uh, nevertheless, it is clear that the United States, Canada, um, so, so to use just these two examples, they tend to be Christian-centric societies. People who are not Christians face various uh, forms of marginalization. I mean, I don't, I, if I cancel this class and say, you know, we can't, we're not going to have a, uh, uh, we're not going to have uh, the lectures or discussion forums during Rosh Hashanah, let's reschedule it during Christmas. You know, the, the, this would just be nonsensical for the university administration. Uh, so this tells you that uh, there are, you know, that certain Christian centricity uh, to uh, to our 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 society. Um, so you could, when when we think about Islamophobia, you could make an argument that it began as religious discrimination and has evolved into racial and ethnic discrimination over time. Uh, at the same time that Spaniards set out to colonize the Americas. Uh, to go back to that Ramon uh, Grossfogel's piece in in lecture uh, in lecture two, uh, we see that the Spaniards expelled Jews and Arabs from the Spanish Peninsula during this time. Religious beliefs were primary motivation for the marginalization of Jews and Arabs. For you could, we we could call this uh, early forms of anti-Semitism and uh, Islamophobia. But the more recent times, Islamophobia and anti-Arab sentiments have primarily taken the form of cultural racism. It's a concept that, that, that's often thrown around, and it's perhaps useful in this case. The tropes used to describe Muslims and Arabs, such as, the, such as uncivilized barbarian, savage, etc., uh, are markers of cultural racism. And, and Islamophobia can be seen 
as a form of racism, much like anti-Semitism can be seen as a form of racism. So this is going back to this earlier point about uh, Euro-medievalists like uh, Geraldine Heng, who says that, you know, we might, might be uh, helpful to define uh, racism more broadly and race, in fact, more broadly than, 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 than we normally do. Um, so, uh, and there are many kind of sub-arguments here. Uh, it's important to draw a distinction between Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism. So despite that Americans and Canadians conflate Arab and Muslims, only one-fifth of the world's total Muslim population is Arab. And not all Arabs are Muslim. Most, most Arabs in North America are, in fact, Christian. Um, so uh, so anti-Arab racism, some would argue, goes beyond dislike and this days uh, for Islam and can be used to justify all kinds of other, uh, other things. Anyway, those are the kinds of sub-arguments you can, you're welcome to explore in your... Um, in uh, in your uh, discussion board responses as well as in your blogs. So for today, um, we have two readings. Uh, one is a piece by Baljit Nagra, who is a sociologist who actually teaches here at the University of Ottawa. And you're going to love it because it's, uh, it's a good, you know, ECH research uh, method style piece that sets a research question, uh, proposes uh, you know, certain hypothesis to uh, respond, to give answers to their research questions, uh, you know, sets up a research design uh, with data collected, evaluating those hypotheses, and then pro- provides uh, some answers uh, to, uh, to the puzzle uh, it sets out with. It's called Cultural Explanations of Patriarchy, Race, and Everyday Lives marginalizing and othering Muslim women in Canada. So it's, it's, it's probably the most empirical piece, no, not probably, it is the most imper- empirical piece on, on the entire syllabus, so you're going to love it. I should say that Baljit Nagra and I worked on a research project a few years back. Um, uh, it was called Securitizing Muslims in Canada. After 9-11, it was funded by Public Safety uh, uh, of Canada, their program called Kanishka. Uh, and so we were collaborators in this larger project. Uh, she ended up producing this piece. I ended up producing something else uh, on, on media representations of Canadian Muslims in U.S. newspapers. Her piece is much better, which is why I signed it. Mine is in the, only in the recommended readings. For those of you who are interested in uh, Islamophobia uh, and media representation, so check it out. Um, so, so there's really, I mean, it's, it's fairly self-explanatory. Uh, it, it, it's easy to read and you will understand it. Uh, quickly. Uh, now, w- the second piece for today is Alana Lenten's uh, chapter four, entitled Good Jew, Bad Jew, uh, from her White Race uh, Still Matters book. And this is, is going to be a little more challenging for you, I think, uh, because, you know, she is discussing various contexts, you know, UK, Australian, French, uh, talking about uh, philo-Semitism, state philo-Semitism, cultural Marxism. So some of these concepts are going to be new for you. And so much like all of all of her writing uh, in this class, it will, it will be perhaps more challenging for some of you who have not read this type of stuff before, who are coming into this for the first time. Uh, but her argument is actually very straightforward in this chapter. She says, we need to think of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia as entangled. The political utility of anti-Semitism today is not to illuminate the oppressions of, of race, but rather to obscure them. This is really interesting, right? So whenever anti-Semitism... She's never saying that anti-Semitism is not a problem. 
but she's saying that you should pay attention to how it's deployed. So the severity of race is a technology of rule, as she defines it, from, from these frozen accounts of racism has uh, precipitated a public illiteracy about how race works that, that presents a serious challenge for anti-racism. So this is a really interesting argument. Um, and, and so you must pay attention uh, on what's deliberately uh, obfuscated in this performative, as she calls it, performative preoccupation with anti-Semitism. It obscures the workings of race. Um, and, 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 and her point is, um, I guess her target is, is both the right and sometimes the left, but mostly the right. Uh, so a widening circle on the right and for many centrists uh, today, in fact, the defense of Jews relies on the classification of Muslims and Islam as the world's greatest threat and Islamophobia as a bogus and illegitimate concept. So it's pitting Jews against Muslims and of the racism uh, both uh, groups experience. It plays a central role in how anti-Semitism is presented as a problem on the uh, on the rise uh, today. And she brings in these, it's really remarkable, she brings in such a panoply of characters uh, in this story from the French philosophers uh, like B.H.L., Bernard-Henri Lévy, to, uh, Hungarian, to the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, the Israeli Prime Minister uh, Bibi Netanyahu, so, so they're all playing a, a, an important role in this chapter. Um, and she says, uh, you know, perhaps the most interesting is is this alliance between Orban of Hungary and Netanyahu of Israel, and they're finding common ground, uh, even though one is anti-Semitic, the other is is, is the Prime Minister of I- Israel. So you really kind of have to unpack that, think about it. You know, what First of all, why are they doing it themselves? Like, what what benefit they have um, in this personally and institutionally? And then second, what are the long-term implications, ramifications for uh, our world, right? In which you know now we have a situation when we, you know, Orban and um, uh, and and Netanyahu have a have a common common ground. Um, so. Uh, the point then is the is we got to look at anti-Semitism not as independent or independently identifiable, but as that which relies on attendant Islamophobia and and pro-Zionism uh, that that mysteriously slip out of view when it appears on the right and in pro-Israel circles. Um, so, as the case of Orban, for example, attests. Anti-Semitism is excused if opposition to Muslim and support for Israel are present. Uh, and pro-Zionist politics, uh, they're not consistent with a rejection of anti-Semitism, even if the defense of Israel generally presupposes support for the Jewish people. Um, and so so it becomes... It, it's, it's, I mean, some of your Jews in this class, some of you have connections with Israel... And and you know this this is gonna this is gonna challenge you to think about uh, claims of anti-Semitism differently and you know how do we situate anti-Semitism as a problem? And she says yes, 
much like the Irish, much like the Italians, much like whoever, the Jews benefited from entering the white race. But what's happening now is that there's a re-racialization of Jews. And this flies in the face of attempts by Jews to de-racialize themselves uh, following the Holocaust and, and to assert themselves as a religious mi minority because that allows them to enter into the mainstream. So, for example, Jews in America refer, refer themselves as American Jews rather than Jewish Americans. And this is a way of saying, you know, we're not just an ethnic group, we're just, we're Americans, um, uh, and being American is, is, is not secondary to us. American is first. Um, so, so this, currently, we're seeing a reverse process. And uh, so, these political games that are being played are very dangerous for everybody because, as we know, you know, if one one group is not free, no group is ever going to be free. It, it, you know, the freedom of one of all of our groups depends on the freedom of all of our groups. Um, you know, if if Palestinians aren't free, we can't be free. Uh, that, it, that that's kind of the big point about. Uh, about a book in which pre she presents race as a, as a as a technology of rule, and so she says it's no longer useful to theorize anti-Semitism um, um, independently of Islamophobia, although Islamophobia uh, works uh, institutionally. Uh, in in certain ways, the inverse is not true. So the complete theory of anti-Semitism requ requires it to be juxtaposed with the ways in which it's manipulated in the service of anti-Muslim racism um, and, and not, not to uh, analogize the two together. So, um, it's, uh, that's why the, the, the subsection, one of the subsection titles is called Entangled, uh, uh, Entangled racism, or how does she put it? Oh yeah, the codependency of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. So think about that. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a chapter that doesn't really discuss Canada, um, but we can, perhaps, you know, a goal for us will be to think about how it might apply to Canada and some of our invocations of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, so in the context of Canadian politics. Um, there are uh, parts of the chapter in which she talks about uh, equation of Jewishness with whiteness uh, and Zionism as whiteness. Um, and she's saying that we need a race critical reading of what, of what function this, this equation has. Um, if we think that all Jews are Zionist, uh, what does this mean for the operation of racial rule? Uh, at a fundamental level, the question, uh, the equation of all Jews in, with Zionism, whether it comes in the form of, form of pro-Zionist establishment or from those opposed to Israel, is itself a form of anti-Semitism that refuses the possibility of Jews, you know, not agreeing uh, with with this or the fact that it refuses the possibility of Jews not being white. I mean, as she very clearly knows, uh, says, you know, at some point Jews were actually brown and black. In fact, today we have black Jews. There are Hollywood movies about this. Even when you go to, uh, if you spend time in Israel, you you will understand that it's a hierarchy as well, even within the Jewish population of Israel. So you have, you know, the Ashkenazim, you have the Sephardim, you have the um, 
the Falusha, the, the Ethiopian Jews, uh, and and then uh, Mizrahim, which was the, the, the North Amer- North uh, African and Middle Eastern Jews. And there's a very clear hierarchy of who uh, who has greater power in uh, in Israeli society. So this is quite separate from. Israeli-Arab relations or Israeli-Palestinian relations. Uh, this is just intramural Israeli relations. Um, so this, this is very interesting. Intra, I should say intra-Israeli Jewish relations. Um, so the, it's, it's a rich chapter. Um, it will it will uh, it will make you think. Her conclusion, predictably, is that you know we should decolonize uh, anti-Semitism. Um, we should decolonize thinking about uh, Islamophobia. Um, Post-Holocaust European states often declare never again, uh, but this too is is a bit of a trick. What really what this really has always meant is David Reif, journalist, said um, is that never again will the Germans kill Jews in Europe in the 1940s. Actually, never really was <laughs> it was never applied. To Europeans, colonial European colonial empires uh, at the time, it's uh, it, it was essentially a cognitively dissonant denial of the fact that colonization had not stopped at the time. So, you know, colonization continued well uh, after World War II. So, Europe was explo- uh, exploiting and racially dominating um, um, uh, its colonized and formerly colonized others while it was avowing. Uh, this so this never again. So another rich chapter with a lot of uh, stuff to for you to respond to and think about. And uh, looking forward to your reactions. Uh, thank you for listening. And until the next week.